Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and health care with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. Governor Kathy Hochul this week signed a package of anti-sexual harassment bills into law meant to hold New York's elected officials more accountable for their actions in such cases. More now from the Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt. Hochul, saying everyone has the right to a safe, secure workplace, signed laws that close a loophole that held state elected officials exempt from the consequences of sexual harassment. That's because they were not technically employed by the state or a municipality. The new law makes the state, town, or city accountable for the actions of its elected officials. Let's close the loophole once and for all that says that you are subjected to the human rights laws, and that means that your employees have all the protections that are out there in the private sector. They now are conferred upon all state workers for the first time. Human rights law will now be changed. Another measure sets up a toll-free hotline where professionals at the Division of Human Rights can respond to complaints of sexual harassment in any workplace in the state and connect victims with experienced attorneys to assist them in pursuing their cases. Hochul's predecessor, former Governor Andrew Cuomo, was never mentioned by name during the ceremony, but Cuomo's resignation last August after the state attorney general found he sexually harassed 11 women paved the way for Hochul, then lieutenant governor, to become the state's first female governor. The new laws will apply to governors and everyone else in state government. Cuomo denies he did anything wrong. Hochul alluded to the former governor when she touted her administration's requirement that every employee attend in-person anti-sexual harassment training. We've also directed all of our employees to have anti-harassment training. Everybody. Okay, that was not going on before. But also I said, and it's going to be in person. You know why? Because I know people just click through, right? Are they really paying attention? I want real accountability. I want everyone who calls themselves a state employee to have been trained in anti-harassment training. Cuomo was accused of skipping the then-mandatory online training for state employees and having his secretary do it instead. The former governor said he completed the training, but he had his aide sign his name to the form. The third bill signed by Hochul stems directly from an occurrence that took place in the former Cuomo administration. It will now be a violation of the state's human rights law to retaliate against an accuser by publicly releasing their personnel files. Cuomo's top aides and allies orchestrated a leak of former Cuomo aide Lindsay Boylan's employment records after Boylan said the former governor sexually harassed her on multiple occasions. The attorney general's report confirmed those accusations. Hochul was joined by advocates, including members of the Sexual Harassment Working Group. It's made up of current and former state legislative aides who experienced or reported sexual harassment incidents in their workplace. The group advocated for the new laws. Co-founder Tori Kelly, who worked for former state assemblyman and serial sexual harasser Vito Lopez, says employees will have more protections now. I appreciate that the trauma that I have endured has now better informed our laws. 
All three bills are vital so that victims trust the system and feel safe to bring their cases forward. Kelly's group and others are pressing for passage of the Adult Survivors Act. It's modeled on the Child Victims Act, which gave survivors of childhood sexual abuse a one-year window of opportunity to take their alleged abusers to court. The bill would give adult survivors of sexual abuse and harassment the same rights to sue. Hochul has said she'll take the lead of the legislature and sign the measure if it is approved. It remains mired in the state assembly. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. listening to the Legislative Gazette, program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Joining us now, Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Shartok. Alan, this week, former Governor Andrew Cuomo trying to get back in the political game. He says he's open to running for New York governor again. You've been talking about this since he left office. And, you know, he's out there at the New York Hispanic Clergy Organization yesterday. I listened to some of it railing against his own party, much like Tom Swasey over bail reform. Clearly a strategy there. And he was asked directly, are you planning to run for governor? He said, I'm open to all options. When asked whether he'd consider creating his own political party to do so, Cuomo said, I've done it before. My father's done it before. Well, let me put it this way. He is a guy who is not going to sit still and say, I'm done. I've said that over and over again. I predicted that this would happen in columns. I predicted it in our conversations. David, in order to understand what's happening here, you have to understand Cuomo. This is not a guy who quits. He's a tough guy. I gave him a nickname years ago, Andrew Tough Guy, and he is that. I don't admire it, but I do think that the Democratic establishment in New York must be quaking in their boots. They thought they had this thing all sewn up. I'll tell you a little story, for whatever it's worth. Look, I am not a Cuomo fan. I've had my troubles with Cuomo, and frankly, he doesn't like me that much, so that's reciprocated. Nevertheless, when I just said that the new governor was competent, Kathy Hochul, I had a telephone call basically telling me, cut it out. Competent is not a good enough word. You know, excellent or whatever is presumably what they once said. But I think she's competent. Whether she has the leadership bones to inspire people, that I think is much out there right now. Andrew Tough Guy has proven that he can. And he's going to go for it. There's no question in my mind about it. And we'll see what happens. Of course, you can see the campaign being waged against him in the ads. And now you have this latest report from the state controller, Tom DiNapoli, who you talked to about the Department of Health undercounting of COVID-19 deaths in nursing homes, not being prepared and laying a lot of it at the feet of the executive who took the reins. And that includes Governor Cuomo. It certainly does. Look, we all knew what was happening. Cuomo was calling the shots, not only for him, but for his health commissioner. And in the end, it cost him because people blamed him for the mess we had in our nursing homes and hospitals. But he is a guy, when he is supervising his troops, he doesn't take any naysayers, that's for sure. And these folks were listening to him and doing what he wanted. Well, the ripple effect of the Russian invasion of Ukraine is impacting the entire world, including 
New York State, and the controller has a role here as well. You talk to him about our investments in Russia. He says, while it wouldn't make much of a mark in terms of pulling that money out, it's not a lot, even though it's over $100 million. He did say that they've spent a considerable time now looking at the pension fund and divesting itself of their Russian investments. Well, do you divest yourself at a time? It's the question that it might cost you by divesting. I know that's kind of circular, but the fact of the matter is he's got some Russian investments. His job is to make sure that the pension funds are solvent and that they are worth more than when he came in. So he's a guy who has to look at not only the politics of the moment, which is to get rid of Russian stuff because they're the enemy now, But also, he has to make sure that he's making money in his funds, because that's the way he's going to get judged, and he knows it. Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Chartal. Listening to the Legislative Gazette, program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustino. New York U.S. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand was in Troy late last week promoting the Made in America Manufacturing Communities Act of 2022. The Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas was there and filed this report. Gillibrand stopped by the Gene F. Haas Center for Advanced Manufacturing Skills at Hudson Valley Community College. The Democrat cites changing purchasing patterns among consumers, supply chain issues, and the two-year-long pandemic as reasons to rebuild the U.S. economy by creating manufacturing jobs. This bill would call on the Secretary of Commerce to establish a manufacturing community support program, which would strengthen the manufacturing base of the United States by making long-term investments in manufacturing communities. Those investments would come in the form of support for public-private partnerships between academic and workforce training programs, nonprofit organizations, state and local governments, and commercial industry, helping centers like the Gene Haas Center train and place more workers in manufacturing jobs. A 95% job placement rate before graduation speaks for itself. I've been proud to support HVCC and was just here with Secretary Granholm not too long ago to show off how the programs here at HVCC are training local workers to fill the new offshore wind manufacturing jobs that will be coming online at the Port of Albany. That's exactly the kind of partnership this bill would support. Gillibrand says the measure would encourage local groups to partner with eligible consortiums to develop and design their own programs. This bill is modeled on the successful Defense Manufacturing Community Support Program, which I helped to establish in the NDAA several years ago. Thanks to that program, we have 
made critical investments in developing defense manufacturing communities all across New York and all across the country that are gaining the skills, facilities, and research capabilities necessary to support and innovate our national security operations. Fellow Democrat Troy Mayor Patrick Madden says Gillibrand has been a strong advocate for upstate New York and working people. The global pandemic and recent events in Eastern Europe have put in stark relief the dangers of an insufficient domestic manufacturing capability. In times of crisis and turmoil, we are vulnerable to the shortages of critical goods and materials, and at times even limiting our ability to exert effective leverage on the world stage. Building a strong base of domestic production can ensure the health and well-being of our country in difficult times. Simultaneously, Manufacturing creates jobs, jobs that provide living wages, jobs that provide people with an opportunity to raise families, to set down roots, to buy homes, in short, to realize the American dream. There's more information on the bipartisan bill at WAMC.org. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Following village elections this past week in New York, one of the top issues local leaders are facing is the expansion of the state's recreational marijuana industry. In the Columbia County village of Kinderhook, board trustee Mike Abrams is set to begin a two-year term as mayor in early April after being elected this week. He spoke with the Legislative Gazette's Jim Laboulis about the community's approach to the cannabis industry's expansion. When New York State legalized it, um, our town really took the lead on trying to figure out whether or not this is this is good for our, our town and, and the two villages that you know make up the town of Kinderhook, which is uh, Valacia and, and Kinderhook, the, the village of Kinderhook. So the, the, the town supervisor and the, and the mayors of both villages, as well as um, members of the planning board, um, participated in a, num- a number of conversations and, and open hearings to kind of figure this out. So what we what we ultimately decided as a town um, and and with the two villages is that uh, from feedback from the residents was that we do not want on-site usage. You know we don't want you know a lounge or we don't want you know people to be in our parks or or anything you know being able to smoke marijuana. So that was that's what we opted out of. 
but we, we collectively as a town opted in to uh, a dispensary. Um, but the idea was to, to have it within the town somewhere, somewhere where it's not close to any schools or uh, libraries or childcare centers or anything like that, um, but not necessarily within the villages of Kinderhook or Valacia. Um, so we wanted to find a, a spot, you know, within the town um, so that we, um, you know, because there were some residents that, that, that wanted it and, you know, had an interest in it, but we also wanted to make ourselves available, you know, for the tax revenue as well. Um, so that's kind of what the, the conversations were, you know, throughout the past year between the town and, and the villages. Um, and I think, you know, I think we threaded a nice needle there. You know, there's most of the folks that I talk to here in the village do not want a dispensary within our historic district. Um, there are some people who think that, you know, we, we can be able to do it and, you know, you're able to do it in a, in a discreet way. And, you know, uh, but, um, you know, the majority of the people don't want it in, in our historic district or, or within the village you know, business district there. Um, so I, I'm opposed to it right now until um, we understand better what the regulations from New York State are going to be and, and how um, how uh, we are able to manage it and what the impact for our village is going to be. Because we don't know what the cost to us is going to be. Uh, we don't know if we need to we need another code enforcement officer. If you know, that we need to pay them more to do more of the you know the um, uh, the you know the moderating it and, and regulating it. So. Um, there's a lot we still don't know, um, but, uh, you know, we're willing to work with everybody to try to figure out what's best for, for our town and our village. So if a marijuana retailer came to you uh, as as the mayor uh, and says, you know, I want to locate in the village, uh, that's the best spot for us, you would say what to that person? Well, I would say, well, first they have to go to the state, right? So the state is the one who's uh, they have to go to first to to get all the you know the approval and the licenses, but we also have a uh, we have a process, so it's not up to any one person whether or not you know a dispensary can open up in the village. So I can't, as mayor, say yes or no. Um, so we would have to they would have to go through the planning board and the zoning, you know, just like any other business that would open up, you know, and just make sure that you know their operations um, don't have a negative impact on our village in any way, shape, or form. So. You know, if someone came to us, you know, we would have to first make sure that they're abiding by, you know, everything that the state is going to, to require of them. And again, we don't know what those are, what those requirements are. Um, but then we have a process within our village you know, that every business has to go through. And, you know, they would have to go through the same process. Mike Abrams, the mayor-elect of the village of Kinderhook, New York, speaking with the Legislative Gazette, Jim Lavoulis. Listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Republicans in New York State have been ratcheting up their criticism of Democrats over the issue of bail reform. To that end, Capital Region sheriffs and lawmakers gathered this week to call for changes to the state's bail reform laws before the legislative session ends in June. The Legislative Gazette's Ashley Hupfel reports. Republican State Senator Jim Tedisco in Fultonville joined the Montgomery, Fulton, Saratoga, and Herkimer County sheriffs in asking lawmakers to give judges more discretion when setting bail. Tedisco, from the 49th District, says that the change in the law has caused a rise in crime. People are calling what took place a catch and release, and it is. 
and they're calling it a get out of jail free card, and it is. But it also is basically a revolving door of danger and disaster. The Democratic-controlled New York State Legislature passed bail reform during the 2019 legislative session, and it took effect in 2020. Under the laws, cash bail is prohibited for most misdemeanors and nonviolent felonies, and judges are required to release people with the least restrictive conditions imposed. Proponents argue people of color are disproportionately represented in the state's prisons and jails, and bail discriminates against that population. The laws came under fire as crime spiked amid the COVID-19 pandemic. Republicans latched onto the issue going into an election year, saying the rise in crime is due to the bail reforms, despite there being a nationwide increase. Tedisco conceded the pandemic may be a factor, but believes the bail reforms are playing a larger role. I think there could be other factors. Yeah, I, I think probably maybe the pandemic has something to do with it. But the levels are just uh, astounding. And, I mean, we see it every day in, in the paper. This person was arrested nine times or something, and this person was just arrested last week, and they're doing this. Uh, I mean, the statistics are there that it's people being released that also are committing a lot of crimes. And, and we know that under the previous law, these people would not be released, and they could not commit those crimes as efficiently, effectively as they are right now. During the press conference, Saratoga County Sheriff Michael Zerlow and Montgomery County Sheriff Jeffrey Smith said the most apparent change in the bail laws has been seen in domestic violence arrests. Zerlow says with the new laws, if a man or woman is arrested for domestic violence, they are released almost immediately. Yeah, they would set bail. It's more or less a, a cool-down period. Mm -hmm. you, you're, you're like $250, you're out, and then you're out the next day. You're cooling down to understand what took place. Instead, it's almost like a catch-and-release now, and they're right back out there, and the judge will say, well, there's an order of protection. Well, that's nothing to these people if they want to commit the crime. Smith described one such incident that happened a few weeks ago in Montgomery County. Last Friday, we had a, a male hold a knife to an, an ex-girlfriend's throat, 7.30 in the morning. A few months ago, that same male was arrested for strangula strangulation and domestic violence incident. Prior to bail <coughs> reform, that subject would have been arraigned because an order of protection was requested. Most likely, and I can't guarantee it as I stand here because I'm not the judge, bail would have been set. He would have been in our facility on bail because of that original incident and received some mental health counseling, maybe some anger management counseling. He did not come to jail. He was released. Last Friday, he stood outside of her apartment, waited for her to come outside, held a knife to her throat, was rearrested, violated the order of protection. So there's a specific example of where that individual may have gotten some help and not have committed the second offense. Julie Keegan, Clinical Services Program Director at the Unity House of Troy Domestic Violence Services, says survivors have been more hesitant to file charges against their alleged abusers in the wake of the bail reform laws. The report only then just incites anger in the abusive partner, and then typically there had been time between a release from their arrest. Now we're not seeing that, and they're being released usually right away, often just returning back to the situation, just with heightened emotions towards the situation. Many domestic violence offenders are charged with misdemeanors. Keegan says she would like to see changes to give judges more discretion on setting bail or increasing the punishment to keep alleged abusers away from their victims. Those couple of hours that we are being given are really, really important in terms of 
the release of um, perpetrators from jail. And if we had just a little bit more time, we'd have even more time to layer in services for the individual, whereas now we're not having as much time. Although Governor Kathy Hochul and Senate Majority Leader Andrea Stewart-Cousins, both Democrats, originally said there was no appetite to scrap the bail reform laws this year and want to wait for more data before considering changes, Hochul is now signaling she's open to adjustments. According to an internal memo obtained by multiple media outlets, Hochul is pushing lawmakers to expand the number of crimes eligible for bail and wants to give judges more discretion to take into account criminal history and harm defendants could pose to others when setting bail. At the press conference on Wednesday, Tedisco said he believed changes would be made this year. The Republican said he believes there is enough support in the Assembly to pass a measure giving judges more discretion, though its fate in the Senate remains unclear. Democratic New York City Mayor Eric Adams, a former police officer, has also called for changes to the bail laws. Well, they've always uh, they've said a lot of things about a lot of things. They said they weren't going to do the gas uh, tax uh, elimination, and you know it's in the budget, that they, the one house in the Senate. So uh, listen to what and watch what they do and uh, hear what they say, but take, take it with a grain of salt because the things change from day to day, and it seems when the pressure gets there, we're representatives. We're there to listen to our constituents. They're not listening, I think, to a large number of their constituents. And when it gets to the point where it's going to affect something like re-election, I think it'll have a bigger impact. And I think it's getting close to that point. The state legislative session ends in early June. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Ashley Hupfel. And that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. That's 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2211. Or just listen or podcast on the web at wamc.org. And join us again next week at this same time for more news on New York State government and politics. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustina. <laughs>